one of the most compelling features of scripture, of our Bibles, is that the actors and generations change. You know, it covers huge swathes of time, but while all the different people change, you find that there is a single storyteller. You find God Almighty behind every aspect of it. He retains authorship from Genesis to Revelation. And uh, he keeps showing his face to different people, different prophets and leaders uh, and different strategic people. And what he does, he weaves together all these different stories into this grand drama. Um, and it just goes through thousands of years, the faithfulness of God. And it, it should be something every time we look into it, uh, a, sense, uh, a sense of God's faithfulness and a sense that, you know what, we can depend on God, that we can trust him, that uh, we can lean on him. And um, before we dive into possibly the most important episode in the Old Testament, I want us to look at an earlier passage. If you've got a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 20, um, Genesis chapter 4, verse 2. And if you haven't got a Bible, um, you are welcome to get uh, uh, one from the uh, uh, back in the foyer. Um, we've got a load of new Bibles there, which you are welcome uh, uh, to reference. It says this. Uh, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 2, and this is sort of the second bit of it. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to God. But Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from the firstborn of the flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. And Cain, being generous of heart and uh, uh, slow to be provoked, took it in his stride, and they all lived happily ever after. If you ever had uh, sons uh, or brothers, um, you will know that that is not how it works at all. Um, and so it goes on. And he goes, Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let, let's go out to the field. Yes. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel. And this is the worst reply ever. And it is a reply that people have been using for thousands of years to absolve themselves of their responsibility. Um, he says, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? The answer, let me be clear, and this is not a point in the sermon, is yes. You are your brother's and sister's keeper. Yes, you have responsibility for them. Yes, you are to look out for them. No, you don't get to wash your hands um, of them when they do uh, things that you don't like. Yes, you are there to be a helper to them. And then the Lord said, what have you done? Listen. 
your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse, driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And so we have this picture right in Genesis of humanity living side by side. Cain and Abel farming the land and livestock. And both brothers quite rightly want to um, recognize God in his provision, in his generosity, in the uh, uh, growth of the crops and the growth of the livestock. And uh, they give a portion of their harvest. And Cain gives a portion of his harvest, which was right and proper. But Abel demonstrates a more beautiful heart because he gives the firstborn of his flock. He doesn't give what's left over. He just doesn't allocate God what he can get away with. He gives God the very firstborn of his flock. There is this primacy. You know, whatever I get in, God, I want to give you the very best of it, not the dregs or what I can afford or what is left over. There is a a faith and a love and a worship that uh, elevates Abel's uh, um, uh, offering. And Cain exposes the ugliness of his heart. You're like, why God give him such a hard time? You know, he gave a portion of his harvest. You know, why, why, you know what? I know God loves a cheerful giver, but doesn't he love a a half-hearted giver as well? But we have here Cain's heart exposed further. We suddenly find what God is really getting at. He goes, your um, half-hearted offering was a sign that inside your heart there was more going on. And the ugliness of Cain's heart is shown because he murders his very own brother in this sense of competitiveness, in this sense of self-identity, in this sense of I don't want other people to be elevated. And God confronts Cain. He goes, what are you doing? What have you done? And he says, and it's a very provocative thing, he says, Abel's blood cries out. Not his corpse but his blood, and there is a focus on the loss of the red stuff, on this, on the loss of uh, Abel's lifeblood. And this passage gives us four things we need to take away, and, and, and this, is, this is just some passing observations. Firstly, um, turning over a portion of your, lives, um, of your livelihood is an act of worship to God. It was... It's not something that is sort of regulated by the old and new covenant. It's not something, uh, a law that you somehow should do or shouldn't, that preachers need to go and uh, uh, talk about and go, oh, you, you need to give a tenth or 20%. Right at the beginning of the story of humanity, out of the fullness of Abel's heart, he gave a portion of his income to God as an act of worship. And it is a pattern that has continued through humanity. Lives that are full of appreciation of God's grace give generously. And the question is, is that you? Is your life full of an appreciation of God? And if you say, yes, it is, then that will be reflected in how you give. But it goes on. 
the act of giving must be accompanied by a heart of devotion. You can give the Lord 50% of your income, but if it is not associated with that sense of appreciation, that sense of worship, that sense of devotion to God, then it is worthless. You might as well not give God anything because he is interested in what is going on inside and how that works itself out. He is interested in your actions and your interior lives. Thirdly, we find shed blood has this uh, symbolism here is uh, uh, something that is perhaps more significant. We, uh, we can uh, gain and lose blood in our society. You know, you can go down to blood banks and give them. And, and uh, um, if you're a, uh, um, and, and, and it's easy to lose that. But, but in the Old Testament, to, to lose blood was to, to see the loss of life. You know, it was like a finite resource in their minds. And um, when life was lost, blood was shed, and the two were uh, irretrievably linked. And the stain left by Abel's blood has this resonance to heaven. It kind of speaks into God's presence, and it, it cries out, God, uh, and God hears the cry of this blood. It's, it's quite poetical language. This is not the language of science or mass. This is the language uh, of the poets, of the prophets, of uh, uh, pictures and uh, um, song. The blood cries out and God replies. And each of these things helps us understand the climax of the Exodus story. We have been spent well over a year walking with Moses through uh, this uh, um, extraction of Israel from Egypt's slavery. And we have sort of tried to explore the context uh, of, of this story and, and the meanings behind the words God and the Israelites use. And this story helps us shine a light on the last plague that we're going to look at. So if you've got a Bible, this is the very last plague of God in uh, Egypt. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and he said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Everyone say Passover. Excellent. It's really easy to fall asleep when the weather's so glorious and you're comfortably resting. Uh, so I'm going to keep you awake. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood. Everyone say blood. blood. Dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood. Say blood. Blood. Blood on top of the door, uh, on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the what? He will see the what? He will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe, and, uh, and he will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house uh, or, and strike you down. Moses 
We know his story. We have lived with him for the last sort of 18 months. He is the divinely appointed advocate for Israel. He is a murderer. He has been raised up in Egypt. He spent 40 years um, in the wilderness. He is a family man. He is uh, timid and well-educated. And he leads Israel. And he gathers the elders. These are the heads of the families. And he has this sense of urgency because something is coming that is important. He says, each and every Jewish family, you need to kill a lamb. You need to take a lamb from your flocks. And it says earlier what type of lamb they are to take. And then they are to find and locate hyssop, which is kind of like a garden herb. Uh, I'm not really big on my garden herbs, to be honest. Um, uh, it has an aromatic scent, apparently, and uh, uh, a bit of a distinctive taste. Um, and so they gather this hyssop and, and, and uh, 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 use that to paint the blood. And uh, the, the blood of this animal uh, is painted over the doorpost. And guess what? This lifeblood cries out to God. It is painted on the doorframe. And when it is done, when God Almighty uh, will defend that household, when the destroyer comes to take the lives of the firstborn, <coughs> that blood cries out like Abel's did. And the, the destroyer will pass over. And the blood cries out on behalf of that lamb. And it announces a pleasing sacrifice. The lamb was sacrificed and the blood is a symbol of that sacrifice. And the blood cries out to God and the destroyer passes over that house. And the doorway becomes an invitation for God to have mercy on the inhabitants. For God to hear the cry of that blood, to hear the cry on behalf of the Jewish people within and save that family from the destroyer. And this orientation towards the Almighty and this rich symbolism, we see a grace given to these Israelites. And in the end, this grace will see them saved from oppression and slavery. It is uh, so much going on. It would be easy to take a lot longer to look at these things, but we find this blood crying out from the sacrificed lamb and it being accepted on behalf of the people who claim it and them being saved by grace from oppression and slavery. And for us, hopefully you can't read it without thinking of what happens next. Hopefully you can't read that without thinking of Jesus. Hopefully you can't read that without thinking of the sacrifice, without thinking of the resurrection, without thinking of our own redemption. Thankfully, Peter uh, spells it out. If you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. It says this. It says this in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious 
What does it say? Blood. What does it say? Blood. blood. The precious blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen. I really like this. I, I find it uh, exciting. Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world. Before light was breathed, before the earth was formed, before the mountains uh, erupted from the surface, before the seas populated uh, the troughs of the land, Jesus was chosen. And he was revealed in these last times for our sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Jesus was chosen as the sacrificial lamb before the beginning of time. This means that this Exodus story is very deliberately told and described and unfolding because it points to Jesus. It whispers of him again and again. This is not a series of stories that have been sort of compiled by an editor. This is God telling a story and he whispers of his ultimate uh, solution in this Exodus story with the lamb's blood put on the doorway. He reminds us today of what Jesus did on that cross 2,000 years ago. It is a signpost to the most magnificent rescue plan ever conceived. And that was conceived of before the problem came. There's something thrilling in that. God took on flesh deliberately. Not as a last minute emergency rescue plan. Not as a last ditch effort to save humanity. But as a long devised um, deliberate plan of salvation pointed forward to this Passover where uh, our lives would not be counted forfeit because of our sins, because of the Lamb's blood, because of Jesus's blood. And Jesus's blood this morning, and uh, it's very deliberate that we took communion because that uh, grape juice that we drunk represents Jesus's blood and it cries out for Barbara and Tracy and Bianca and Wendy and Francis and Kevin and Sue and Richard and Kirsty. It cries out for grace and mercy. You haven't earned it. You haven't warranted it. You aren't somehow good. And God saw that and sent Jesus. The grace came first. And Jesus' death proclaims this morning that God loves you that he's called you, that he has chosen you, that you have a hope now and for eternity. And so this Exodus story, while it sometimes may seem a bit dry and foreign, while it sometimes may, may seem hard work, it is our story, it is our salvation that it whispers of. And our salvation and rescue is far greater than the Israelites. The Israelites only had to deal with temporal, uh, finite slavery and oppression. As was eternal, the 
The, the prospect of hell is absolutely abhorrent. And we were saved from that by the death of Jesus. And our rescue is more beautiful and more glorious than this Exodus story can ever hope to aspire to. If you've got a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 12, verse 24. says this, obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this children. And when your children ask, everyone say children. children. When your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Tell them. It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. And when Moses said this, the people bowed down. And what does it say? They worshipped God Almighty that had put in place such a plan. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. The significance of the next 24 hours is elevated again and again. This whole chapter is full of looking forward to that point when the Passover comes. The Passover is central to Jewish identity, central to the Jewish story, central to what they understand about themselves and about God. It is central to all the plagues that have come before and the story that comes after. This final plague is the moment where they are released from slavery. And it has been anticipated for hundreds of years. Ever since uh, uh, Joseph's family were relegated to second-class citizens, these Israelites have been longing for freedom, and now it comes. It's so near that they can taste it. And before it kicks off, Israel is told by God himself, Make sure you save this ceremony. This ceremony is important. It reminds you of this moment. This is something you need to do on a regular basis. Act it out as a festival. Enjoy your time. Allow it to saturate your individual and communal consciousness that God has saved you, that this is your identity, that this is your story, that this is the moment that you have been saved, that this is a happy day for you to rejoice in. And it is to be a reminder when they're in the desert years, when they have uh, acquired their own land, that is a reminder that all this is because of that Passover moment. And the next generations will be like, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? You know, I've got robots to play. I've got Kentucky to eat. I've got all sorts of things. Why would I bother with uh, the Passover? And the adults, and let me tell you, that's you. Each of you need to take responsibility for this. You are to tell our children, and they're the ones screaming and getting hot and sweaty at the back. You need to be able to tell them why we do this. Why? We share communion. Why are they grabbing a great big chunk of bread and a glass far too full of juice um, and mucking about with them? Why are they doing this? Because it is a reminder. 
a reminder of what God has done in the past. And the Israelites were told, when you go to the promised land, you still do this. You remind yourselves, you remind your children, you remind your children's children. Do not let that memory of God's provision escape your daily lives. Do not let the provision of God escape your uh, mental landscape. Do not get so preoccupied with all the struggles and highs and lows of your lives that you forget God's provision to your forefathers because it is the same God today as he was then. It's a critical thing for the community to focus on. And what do the Jews do? They do exactly what they should do and they break out in joy and celebration and it hasn't even happened yet. They're going to be released from slavery and in faith they worship God uh, 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 to the uh, uh, highest degree. Let me read what we normally read uh, at communion time. Go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Hopefully a very familiar passage to all of us. It says this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If it's not highlighted, underlined, uh, asterisked in your uh, books, in your apps, then make sure it is. Because this is a classic uh, uh, passage. It says this in 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 23. It's Paul speaking. I've received from the Lord what I'm passing on to you. This is the Passover story. He's continuing the Passover story. I received from the Lord what I was apostle to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he's saying, This cup is the new covenant in his what? In his what? You guys need to get that blood because it is important. It was important for the Israelites and it is even more important for the Christian. This is why we can sing uh, about the blood of the Lamb. This is why people that don't know Jesus can be a little confused about our rejoicing over blood. And this is why the first Christians used to be uh, uh, confused with sort of vampires and cannibals because we would talk about the blood of the Lamb so much. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Everyone say death. Paul's letter to the Corinthians. This is a messed up church, okay? We did a series in 1 Corinthians quite a few years ago, and uh, we immersed ourselves in the absolute messiness of the Corinthian fellowship. They got all sorts of things wrong, and Paul returns to this thing and goes, you know, community, even though some of you get drunk and some of you uh, uh, overeat at communion, you still need to remember this moment of communion. Because it is a pattern we need to repeat. We need to keep going back to this table. We need to keep going back to this festival, this Lord's Supper, this reminder that Jesus died for us. That uh, we are saved by grace. That this is the most important thing in our lives. Is that true, I wonder? In your daily lives, is that a most important thing? Is it the thing that you return to with thankfulness? With deliberation? With a sense of repentance? 
we are to have these regular symbolic moments where Jesus' sacrifice takes the center stage, where everyone else stands back and Jesus becomes the middle. And we remind ourselves all that we have. And I'm not talking about material things. I'm talking about the spiritual richness of our Christian faith. All that we have and all we look forward to is because of God's grace expressed through Jesus. We are not to be preoccupied with past failures. You know, I'll let them go. The blood of the Lamb cleanses it all. Current disappointments, current failures, current insecurities, uh, current frustrations, these are not your lot. These are not your inheritance. These are passing. And fears for the future. Trying to avoid my trying all my best to uh, avoid the newspapers and, the, and all the descriptions of the rising costs and how, you know, I won't even be able to fi- feed my kids with cold baked beans by the end of it. But all of that passes away before the grace of God because he says, I've got you. I've got you. My grace is sufficient for all your needs. My grace will be there. We need to orientate ourselves around that Christ on the cross when he says it is finished because it is finished every battle every war every conflict it is finished the uh, victory is assured the outcome is guaranteed the faithfulness of God will not be overcome by anything else right Exodus chapter 12 in the last point, so we're doing my best to not overexpose you to heat. And it says this in Exodus chapter 12, verse 29. At midnight. What a great time for anything to happen. At midnight. Everyone say midnight. midnight. At midnight, the ominous hour. Remember my friends daring us to... Uh, uh, stay in a graveyard uh, at midnight uh, that overlooked his house. And uh, uh, even the good Christian people were like, well, I'm not too sure about that. And so at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. And Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night And this is the one moment where you suddenly have sympathy. Suddenly you feel for the Egyptians. Suddenly you wish they weren't so stubborn. Suddenly your heart goes out to them. Because there was loud wailing in Egypt. For there was not a house without someone dead. The humanity of Egypt you can suddenly feel you're like oh and then you remember everything that came before every stubborn decision every uh uh every moment of oppression every resistance to the word of god and there is that relinquishing to the fact you know finally god has to act decisively and so the 
that very night at midnight, the firstborn of every unprotected person, everyone not covered by the blood of the lamb, they are struck down dead. It doesn't respect the person. The curse hits everyone from the livestock in the fields to the prisoner of the king to the king himself. It does not respect persons. It covers everyone. It is dreadful. It is dramatic and it is decisive. And it endures in the minds of the Egyptians and the Israelites. Despite all the oppression of Egypt, there's still something shocking about a nation wailing for the firstborn. Even now, you're like, oh, oh, I wasn't ready for that. I'm not sure I can cope. And, and this is like the mystery and the, uh, 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 this sort of uh, judgment of God that is not answerable to us. These were human beings who loved and nurtured, who had dreams for their children, had dreams for their, where their children would become, and it's all cut short because they were stubborn in the face of God. But God comes through with this clear decision. But we still feel for them that this is the outcome. The Egyptians were just too stubborn and this is the only thing that would make them listen. They'd harden their hearts and it's pretty grim. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, last uh, reference, closing now. 2 Peter chapter 3. It says this, verse 3. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. And what will they do? Scoffing and following all of their own evil desires. If you don't see this truth at large in the world today, then um, you've missed something. They will say, where is this coming? I love the quote marks there. Where is this coming? Jesus promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water, by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earths are reserved for fire. The pain of the firstborn will be nothing compared to the pain that's coming, to the unrepentant, to the lost, to the stubborn and the rebellious. They are being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Do not forget this one thing. You know, if you're like, oh, God's a little bit on his high horse here. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. You know, his, his faithfulness is non-negotiable. It's not slow, as some understand slowness. Instead, why is Jesus not come back yet? Why is he not here? Why are we not all in heaven rejoicing and uh, hitting tambourines and uh, singing happy day? Because he is patient. 
his patience with the world. He doesn't want anyone to suffer the death and destruction that's coming. He doesn't want anyone to face the destroyer. He wants everyone to have the luxury of that Passover grace. He wants everyone to come to repentance. He wants everyone to give in. He wants everyone to give up their stubbornness. He wants those people that you love and care about that don't know Jesus to come saved. Some of us say, come Lord Jesus, now I'm ready for you. But we have loved ones that don't know Jesus. And that is why he hasn't come yet, so that they can be saved. But make no mistake, even tomorrow is not guaranteed. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And that means it will come in surprise when you're least expecting it. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Everything will be undone. There'll be nowhere to hide. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. The day will bring about the destruction of heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. I can feel that. The elements will melt in the heat, but but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Peter reminds us that the Exodus story is a whisper of a much wider story of judgment Because we love to talk about grace, but we are sometimes a little coy to talk about uh, uh, the reverse of that, which is judgment. Those who do not claim the blood of Jesus will receive the punishment. They will be like the Egyptians who did not put the blood on their doorways. They will be like the people in Noah's time that did not step into the ark. Those who do not claim Jesus' blood will receive a full and just punishment for their stubbornness. They uh, thumb their nose at God. They reject his guidance. They kick sand in the face of Jesus. We cannot force repentance. Wouldn't it be a great thing if those people we particularly care for and love, that we could somehow twist their arm behind their back and make them believe and suddenly they'd be in and suddenly we wouldn't have them fret for them but we can't do that it's between them and God and and Peter says what do we do the day of judgment's coming what do we do we live lives that glorify Jesus we live holy and godly lives we spend time thinking about it people out there don't think about how to be Uh, loving and holy and godly. People out there don't spend questioning the morality of the decisions they make. People out there don't second guess what God thinks of them because they just, they are their own God. They have chosen to uh, be their own arbiter of what's right and wrong. But you and I, we know there's a higher standard and we live our lives thinking about it. Tomorrow morning we will Consider the decisions we make in the light of Scripture and the illumination of Jesus. And that is good because it uh, 
we become a light in the darkness and other people suddenly realize that morality matters and the uh, um, origin of morality matters. Because we don't make these rules up as we go along. We go, yeah, I quite like that bit. I don't think you should steal it, not steal from me. But if you've got too much, I can steal from you. Or uh, uh, some other moral quandary that we make up the rules. We look to God and allow him to define what's right and wrong. And then we live our lives in accordance with that. And then people see that and realize that we're different. And uh, that, Peter says, will uh, help prompt people uh, to prepare themselves for the day of the Lord. Because that will be an amazing moment for we who have been grafted into Abraham's uh, tree. But for those that are outside it, it will be a grim and terrible thing. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, this exodus moment, this last plague, is a grim reality of the stakes. And it is a beautiful reminder of salvation. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would appreciate the um, salvation that you paid that massive price for by sending Jesus on a cross. Lord God, we thank you that it wasn't a last attempt attempt to save us but it was a long thought out uh, well executed well planned uh, mechanism to rescue us heavenly father i pray that we would live our lives in light of that that we would have thankfulness in our hearts that we would be good at giving out of the fullness of gratitude in our inner beings lord god i pray that um, we would live uh, righteous, holy, godly lives and be lights in a world that is covered in darkness. And Lord God, I pray for all those people that we are near, all those people that we have an affection for, all those people that we care about. Lord God, I pray that they would see our difference to them they would see their need for a saviour, that you would open up their hearts and convict them of their sin, that you would cause them to cry out for the blood of Jesus to cover them. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord God, we thank you that uh, we that are saved are irrevocably in your grasp and that you will never let go. And uh, Lord God, we long for those around us. Lord God, even those that don't treat as well, Lord God, we long for them to know you and we ask. If you're being patient today, Jesus, if you're not coming today, please bring these people to salvation. Lord God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.